Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. Last month saw WISH 2022, the World Innovation Summit for Health, where experts from around the world came to present their ideas. I was there to talk to some of those experts and over the coming weeks, we'll hear from a few of them. But we'll kick off today with two topics. Topics that seem to have swapped places in people's list of fears about the future for healthcare. Firstly, we'll hear from Dame Sally Davis, the UK's Special Envoy on Antimicrobial Resistance. Pre-pandemic, AMR was a concern that was changing treatment patterns around the world. But COVID and treatment uncertainty put paid to conservative prescribing. Dame Sally will tell us where we are now. After that, we're going to be talking about workforce with James Campbell, who's director of the Health Workforce Department at the WHO. The pandemic really showed us how important well-being is, not just to individual staff, but to the service as a whole. And James will be presenting new data about that. He also explains a little bit about the mess we've got ourselves into in the international market for healthcare staff. But firstly, AMR. Well, Dame Sally, thank you very much for talking to us today. Happy to be here. We've been so focused on this viral pandemic for the last two years. Your work has always been about um, communicable diseases and AMR. I was going to say, has COVID really made people take their eye off the ball about AMR, do you think? So, yes and no. People do now understand that infections can not only damage people's health and kill them, but damage economies and really countries as a result. But what we saw early in COVID uh, particularly was that people used excess antibiotics. So the early data coming through now is that um, antimicrobial resistance is going up in respiratory pathogens. A new report from the Medical Research Council of India showing that. And that is disturbing. Meanwhile, people are rather tired of pandemics. So the silent, invidious pandemic of AMR, we're not getting the focus we need. And one of the problems is trying to get people to understand such a serious problem when it doesn't actually have a face. I mean, for COVID, we had the tragedy of all these people dying of COVID and we saw it. We have long COVID. For most things, you have a face. The patient groups are obvious. For AMR, it's all sorts of people. The newest data, February uh, this year, showed that in 2019, nearly 1.2 million people died across the world of antibiotic resistance from resistant bacteria. That's more than died in that year of HIV or TB or malaria. 
Indeed, if you look at the, the, those and the other people who died having drug-resistant infections at the time, though not directly of it, it contributed, that's nearly 5 million people. That makes it the third most important underlying cause of death after heart disease and stroke. So AMR is terribly important, yet it's a technical term, it doesn't have a patient face, and people are tired of infections. Mm. I mean, one thing that did work for public health in the pandemic was just showing the both the financial and the sort of human impact of a, a, a disease running out of control like that. So has, do you feel like that has changed the conversation, made it a bit easier? It it has, yes. Infections, damage economies and people. Um, and that was why, in fact, using a climate change model, we got Lord O'Neill in 2016 to look at the economic impact. I'm beginning to wonder that we may have to have another look at that and, and think about it again. But somehow we haven't got the traction it deserves, considering how many people are dying of AMR. And part of it is the complexity that we talk about One Health in pandemics, including AMR. And it means different things to different people. So for the virologists, in general, it means spillover from the animal or plant sector. For me, One Health means you could have spillover, but it is the impact of what happens in one sector, humans, the food chain, the environment, wildlife, um, that impacts on another sector. And so use in animal husbandry of antibiotics, whether for growth promotion or reasonably for sick animals, impacts on humans because actually of spillover of drug-resistant bugs. Um but it's very difficult to try and get over that it's not just spillover of a new species, it's spillovers and handover of resistance from known species. So I think that's one big problem. Another is that if you talk about One Health, people who are working at the front line, whether it with humans or as vets or looking after olive trees or whatever, they can see what they do. What does One Health mean to them? Mm. And I think we need to encourage people to understand we've got to join it all up at the top, all the data, and keep an eye on it. But they need to do their own jobs well and feel comfortable doing that and not worry about the One Health bit. We've got to deconstruct it again. One interesting thing that I think came out of the pandemic was the sudden understanding of the viral jump between species and how man encroaching into new bits of the world makes that more likely. But obviously, with bacterial infections, it doesn't need to be as species-specific. Um, does that mean, do you, do you think bacteria are actually more worrying in terms of global health than, than viruses? Well, isn't that interesting? Um, do bacteria kill more people than viruses? I've never looked at it that way. But resistant bacteria, for instance, cholera in Bangladesh, um, things like that, when they have outbreaks, kill dramatically. Hmm. So yes, they can kill a lot of people. And if you look at the data of that 2019 study in Africa, that's where most of the deaths from drug resistance happen, 
And it's tragic. One, one out of five children under the age of five in sub-Saharan Africa dying of a drug-resistant bacterial infection. That's wrong. Yeah, And is that, just to clear that up, those, the deaths are directly attributable to the resistance? Yes. Um, that study which came from the globe, um, from the Global Burden of Disease Group, the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation, looked at the deaths that they believed were directly attributable, the 1.2 million in that year, and those where AMR and drug-resistant bacteria were present but may not have been the actual cause of death. They likely contributed. Mm, Okay, thank you. Another thing the pandemic showed was the importance of surveillance and testing. You know, that was so key to our ability to actually tackle these things. Are we as sophisticated looking for AMR? No. um, I think we we learnt from COVID that you need to do good surveillance. We also learnt the value of genomic surveillance. And we learnt that no one's safe until everyone's safe. So think about resistant bacteria. Um, a nice Swedish study some years ago, they sent backpackers, well, they didn't send them off. Backpackers had their microbiomes looked at, no um, resistant uh, genomes in their microbiome. Off they go, they come back and almost all of them had uh, resistance in their microbiome. So you can pick it up and travel around with it. So you see how, how A, you can spread it, but B, how important it is to have surveillance and know what's going on. Because how else can you decide the best way of treating patients with different problems in the community or the hospitals in each part of the world? I have a model which is like a Christmas tree. We need the lights on all the time, and that's surveillance for, for bacteria, for viruses, for resistant bacteria and viruses. Because remember, I'm interested not only in bacteria, but viruses, fungi, all infective organisms. And then if you get an outbreak, an epidemic, a pandemic of something, you pivot the laboratory to that for the period. And indeed, you may know that um, from overseas development assistance, we fund the Fleming Fund, which helps low and middle income countries, 24 of them, build their surveillance for AMR. And South Africa, for one, but others did too, had some genomic background and they pivoted. And that's why they found the beta variant um, so early. It was because they were using their laboratory for AMR to do genomes of COVID, and then Omicron followed. So I think we need the lights on all the time on the Christmas tree of surveillance for AMR. And then if you get a threat, you press another button and they go flashing and pivot. And then you back down afterwards because you can't build a laboratory overnight. You've got to have a system that you amplify, pivot and amplify as needed. And obviously works together with all of our other testing and surveillance that we want to do. And if it's already there, it will do that. So that's how you build what we need for AMR and for treating patients better. But it's also how you build a resilient system. It's one that's always functioning with all the right links. And it's always the healthcare system, though. I mean, recent reports about polio outbreaks in 
the UK. You know, that came from testing sewage and, and surveilling that. I didn't even know that was happening regularly before it that It wasn't point. before COVID. It started in COVID, and I think it's really good. I, I set up in 2020 um, a challenge called the Trinity Challenge for... Uh, a prize pot of five and a half million pounds of how to use data better. And at the beginning, as we set it up, um, people were not doing uh, sewage surveillance. And in fact, we funded one prize winner in the States where they are doing sewage and air surveillance. And what other kinds of innovation in that sphere are happening at the moment? Very interesting project uh, led by Cambridge, but now working all around the world, looking at the uh, black box data from machines that do full blood counts um, in in hospitals and around the world. And they've found a COVID signature using AI, and they're now looking to see if that holds true and whether they can find other signatures, because you're already doing um, the full blood counts. A very nice project from Thailand where they um, take pictures, the farmers take pictures of their sick or dead animals and the pictures go to vets who then help diagnose and advise them what to do with their herds or flocks of animals so that they don't lose their economic well-being, as it were, uh, and the vets will visit as needed. So we had wonderful winners. Have a look at the website, thetrinitychallenge.org. Oh, well, I'll stick the link in so people can do that. What's interesting about this is the kind of holistic view. These are these are sort of piggybacking on other things that have happened or wrapping themselves into the way people live and not, not these little siloed projects that happen by themselves. I found fascinating during COVID how people quite early on in the States, combined movement data with infection data to show that bars and gyms and hotels were dangerous if you didn't want to catch COVID, you know. So using the data that is out there in different ways to give us different public health messages has to be the way forward, harnessing what we've got. And that's a really different way of I suppose funding. You've got you know awards like you gave out. How does that? How do we kind of operationalize that? Make that the, the basis of the way we do public health. Well, I I know that uh, the UK Health Security Agency are looking at, at data and things like that. I'm not sure where they're getting to. The reason I set up the Trinity Challenge was I think. There are different ways of doing things. Um, and one tried and trusted way to bring new people and new ideas into a field is a challenge mechanism with a prize. And that's why we tried it. It was so successful. We're about to launch another on AMR and data, non-hospital data in low and middle income countries. So the other problem around innovation in AMR has been antibiotics. Um, and the fact that well, the commercial proposition for that has not always been favourable. There's market failure. Yeah. Uh, also, just the technology. Are we running out of, of those? COVID saw, you know, a brand new um, vaccine technology, which, which absolutely changed our ability to deal with that. Are we seeing innovation in, in treatments in, uh, in a similar way in 
other diseases? So I think we'd see much more innovation in new anti-infectives, be they for antibiotics or anti-malarials, if um, we had a market model that paid enough to cover the R&D and production costs properly. And um, I've got colleagues who can bore for Britain on, you know, how dreadful the market is. We have tried in England in our NHS working with NICE and the Health Economics Unit in York, a pilot of two new antibiotics looking at the value not just to the individual patient but to society in a bigger way. And that seemed to work and end up with a payment while not bank-breaking for us. In other words, affordable to us, making the drugs available for us in England and therefore uh, across the UK. Um, actually, if everyone did the same and paid their fair share in the G20, would break the market failure. There's a bipartisan act the, in Congress, the Pasteur Act, which would put in place a similar subscription model where you pay a price for having that drug on the shelf as an insurance and you only use it when you need to. Um, and we hope it will go through, but it's proving difficult. Uh, so we can break it. The other area we we need innovation is, of course, vaccines and the mRNA, I'm told, could be used for bacteria. That would be great. And there will be bacteria that the experts will feel we could get vaccines for. You've then got the issue of can we persuade people to take them when they're in their own interests. But the other area is vaccines for food production. So Norwegian and Scottish salmon and trout farmers use vaccines, not antibiotics. That is not the case for most fish farming around the world, yet fish is the fastest growing protein production for human consumption there is. So there's a big tranche of work to be done about how do we take antibiotics out of fish farming generally, and vaccines are part of that. They give a mixture of three vaccines to salmon and trout. When they're each of them tiny, they've roboticized it now. It's just amazing. But also in, um, in you know, the four-legged part of the, uh, of the food chain, we need vaccines, but we need them to be affordable and easy. The, there is uh, one company I know, um, a poultry company called Purdue in the States, who have moved to a double vaccination in their poultry farming, so that and it's intensive. They vaccinate every egg, and then when they hatch, they spray vaccine on the chicks. And you can see that it's been used because they um, they colour it red, and it it gets um, kind of bitten off and eaten, and um, they don't need antibiotics. So it can be done with innovation. Usually at the beginning it costs more, but most innovations with time and practice come down in price. Mm. Do you know how they sold a poultry company in America, presumably at our very... Uh... Consumers. So there's, um, a, I think it's called the chain index, but it's a consumer index of fast food producers and how they use antibiotics. And Shake Shack is at the top with um, Chipotle, whereas McDonald's is halfway down and Wendy's is at the bottom. And people will pay a bit extra to have meat that has not had, and poultry, um, antibiotics misused. The other route in is through consumers. So I work with Investor Action, 
trying to get um, not misusing antibiotics in the food chain into uh, ESG. Uh, so we're working at every angle on this. And every so often I hear things like excitement about bacteriophages as being, uh, you know, a thing or, I don't know, some other mechanical way of um, of stopping bacterial growth. Are, there, are we seeing whole, are there any other new technologies, anything totally different? Well, there are, but they have yet to come to the market. I mean, phages have saved some lives, but they're usually very strain specific. So it's not E. coli, it's mm. one strain. So you, you either have to know what strain it is and then have a library you can grow up or you've got to have a cocktail. But that's not to say we won't make progress with it. Um, and there are other innovations. One I like is it's nicknamed um, the fish jacuzzi. But in fish farming, blowing little bubbles of ozone in to try and reduce bacterial contamination and things. So there are nice things being tried out, but we haven't got there yet. But I keep praying. Yeah. And presumably it's not going to be one magic bullet. No, no it never is. Hmm. Well, Dame Sally, thank you very much for talking to us today. Nice to talk. I'm joined by James Campbell, who's Director of the Health Workforce Department of the WHO. Uh, James, thank you so much for Hi, talking to us. Good afternoon. Now, you've just launched this new report about um, mental well-being um, in the healthcare workforce. Um, it's something that the BMJ has talked about a lot. We had a whole well-being podcast for a while. But it's interesting to put some numbers behind um, you know, what we talked about there. So, so what have you, you brought up in this report and, and what is the latest data? Indeed, today launching uh, this, this new information, the latest data, or through till um, June this year, a review of all the reviews. This is a you know fantastic partnership with Wish, with the the Qatar Foundation, Qatar University, whole group of experts from around the world, uh, looking at this. And, and what we're trying to to understand is both the impact of COVID nineteen on the mental health and, and well being of the health and care workforce around the world. Was that impact? changing over time at different parts and, and of, the, of the pandemic you know we're today um you know 25th of october just around the corner 1000 days since covid-19 was a declared a uh, public health emergency oh of international a thousand, a thousand days of it indeed you know so we're saying two and a half years almost three years but this thousand day milestone is coming up and so okay what have we learned what are the good things that we've learned and what can we take further forward so looking at the burden of illness, looking at what countries and jurisdictions and facilities and employers have done, trying to measure whether what they've done is, has made an improvement to see if there's anything around the literature about the, the evaluations of that, and then some some recommendations to coming forward. So uh, I'm sure, Duncan, you, you, like I said, you've done a podcast on well-being in, in the UK and everything else. So some of these numbers may may be familiar to you in that respect. So what, what are we seeing? Um, you know, ranges. So the prevalence, looking at the ranges from the review of reviews, we're seeing 40 to 52% um, burnout. 
similar ranges for stress and anxiety. Um, now, compared to the data that we had pre-pandemic, that's a, a substantive increase in terms of time. One in two, if you're looking at that, health and care workers expressing symptoms of burnout across all the studies that we're seeing. Now, in individual studies in different countries, in different jurisdictions, for different occupations, in different settings, we've got even higher levels. Um, the American Medical Association has, has come out with a study suggesting you know, almost 62% of physicians experiencing burnout um, during the pandemic. So this is really, at um, we're, we're suggesting this is a pandemic within a pandemic in that respect. It, it's reached levels that have not been reported ever before. Mm. Um, so it's a real challenge. I feel like the conversation around burnout has changed. I mean, I've been doing healthcare coverage for a, a while and you had inklings of this before but really it was only just before the pandemic that people in the healthcare system were really talking about burnout mm. as being a thing that perhaps we need to keep an eye on and then suddenly boom covid do you think it's been a blind spot for a while I, I think, indeed, you know, with the International Classification of Diseases, 11th edition, introduced burnout as, as um, uh, a recognised uh, uh, medical condition uh, that could be captured in, in statistics around the world. That in itself, therefore, starts to destigmatize the issues. Before then, it's often been, you know, for the population as a whole, but also of them for our occupations of interest, the healthcare, health and care professionals. Um, before then, it, you know, medical councils, nursing councils had been looking at this much more along the lines of patient safety, quality of care, and the sort of negative impacts of burnout on those issues, rather than necessarily looking at the, uh, the response to what potentially may be, and in many, many instances, is a normal reaction to the risk factors that that individual has been experiencing. Mm. You know, unsocial working hours, um, delegation of authority and the autonomy being challenged, uh, poor working decisions, poor pay, um, long hours in terms of excessive hours, not just antisocial hours. So if you look at all those risk factors that are common causes for mental health illness in all workers, not just health workers, and then apply it to the health economy, of course, we, we've seen it. So it's been there, for, it's been around for many, 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 many years. But now I think there's an opportunity to cast light. And, you know, I think that we're also seeing gr I mean, greater ease amongst um, sports professionals talking about, you know, their mental health. You know, it's greater, greater ease amongst, you know, artists and, and actors and everything else similar. So there's a much more, this de you know, stigma and, and discrimination around this is being mitigated by some of those stories and therefore it's becoming easier for people to actually come forward. This is not going to necessarily cost you your license anymore. Um, it may just be an opportunity, you know, the cry for help is being heard. Hmm. Those risk factors that you mentioned there, the unsociable hours, lack of autonomy, I mean, to be honest, they seem baked into healthcare systems. They're kind of fundamental. I mean, in the UK, that's just how the NHS functions. And then into that, we put people who we seem to choose 
for perfectionism. You know, you have to be competitive to get the best grades. You have to study. You have to get everything right, and then drop them into this system to to set them up to fail. Really, I mean, this makes it feel incredibly intractable. So I wonder, from your kind of helicopter view of of all of this, what your take on that is? Well, indeed, I think.、Um It is a, it, some of these conditions, some of those risk factors are baked into the the health and care sector, the health and care economy,、uh, and indeed the, these are all all our health and care professionals are tertiary graduates, you know, very、um, you know well educated in, in in terms of competency, in terms of their their ability and selection processes. Indeed, you know, it's it is com- it's a competitive. Competitive sector. Not everyone who applies for a, for a graduate degree in in health sciences and clinical sciences and medicine will will net, get accepted. So, but I, it's not intractable. There is evidence of what works. There are, you know, the report looks at, for instance, you know, with the the, the pandemic within a pandemic. Countries and jurisdictions, employers have taken action against some of these things. They've put in mechanisms. Uh, and the, uh, the, there's mechanisms here, Duncan, that you need to look at in terms of both the human, the response to the human needs, and the response to the organisational.、Mm. Because it's、uh, burn, stress, anxiety, burnout is is manifests in the individual, but its root cause is the organisation in which they work.、Um, and we need to, to to understand that we can't just talk about the. The individual's ability to cope no, no, with pressure,、yeah. uh, and we can't place that that responsibility on the individual.、Um, resilience. We had a, we had a fantastic discussion this morning here in here in、um, Doha about resilience from Giles, the the keynote speaker.、Um, absolutely, you know, really inspirational talk about resilience and personal resilience and the the spirit of resilience. But the antonym of resilience is weakness. The antonym of resilience is fragility, vulnerability,、um, and if somebody exhibits and manifests those symptoms, that doesn't necessarily mean they're weak in terms of stress and burnout. It just means that the the organisational pressures and risk factors has ground them down.、Mm. Um, so we've got to look at the organisational responsibility to get that done, and this is where it's not intractable because we can take action. So the report looks at what evidence is, is there of what is working.、Um, you've got to look at safe staffing levels. Yeah, that's <laughs> going to be my next question. But carry on. Exactly, you've got to look at the safe staffing. You can't expect you can't run health and care economies like you run budget airlines.、Um, you've got to invest in that human capital for the future.、Uh, you've got to have. Um, the the work conditions, the decent work, the pay that goes with the the, the sacrifices,、um, you've got to be looking at some of those, and then you can have some of that additional、uh, support programs, support networks, opportunities to engage with individuals, with groups, with teams,、uh, to to enable them and destigmatize, not make it a regulatory thing. So we've got good examples from a number of countries, from Australia, from Chile. From elsewhere,、um, we've also got the example, you know, in, in the U.S. where they've introduced congressional legislation、um, to actually make it now a requirement to protect health and care workers in their their workplace. 
um, so that that now becomes decentralized, devolved throughout all the states to actually in, in impact over the next several years. Mm. So I'll put a link to um, the, the report on this so everyone can go and, and have a look at some of that because obviously we want to be solutions focused. But safe staffing, I mean, that's just the elephant in the room here. We've got a global <laughs> um, deficit of healthcare staff in the UK. I know we have got 10% of our you know vacancies within the NHS. And on top of that, some extraordinary you know percentage of our primary care doctors are considering leaving in the next um, few years. This is going to take a coordinated plan to put up because we've always poached doctors from elsewhere, but in this global marketplace, you know, can we ever <laughs> train enough doctors to um, to fill that capacity? It, no, it's an interesting challenge, and um, not just for the, the, the four home nations and the, and the UK, uh, the NHS England and, and others there, but around the world now for whether you're a, a, a G77, G20, G7 economy, uh, low middle income, high income, you know, there's a challenge here. So... The way that we've been looking at the evidence around this globally is understanding the labor market. Now, the labor market in health and care is one of the fastest growing economic sectors in terms of job creation, aging populations, uh, greater population need, uh, R&D and sciences and development. So it's really it's generating jobs and jobs and jobs. And especially during the COVID pandemic, we were employing more people globally than many, many other sectors who contracted at, at incredible rates. Um, and you've seen a shift of some of those people who lost work coming into the health and care economy as well. But then you, so you've got, you've got to look at them, but that economic demand to create jobs against population needs, exactly what you're seeing in the UK. You can either fill through a, a, a coherent education policy, or you can fill it through recruitment into the global labour market, um, which with freedom of movement in the European Union, uh, the UK had that opportunity. You, you, you made a decision to shut that uh, opportunity people, off. People have seen the effect of that exactly. in our local hospitals. Yeah. And, um, and so therefore you, you return to the international labour market to substitute uh, those. And we're seeing this around the world. Um, huge economic demand not enough supply in the education system and therefore a turn to international migration. But there's a limited resource here. It's finite. Mm. Because if no one produces enough, then you're, you're, you're all shopping for the same physiotherapist, the same rehabilitation worker, exactly. the same um, theater, specialist theater nurse. Everyone's trying to recruit and attract the same individual to come forward. So, you know, what we need from an economic perspective is a really broad government approach around the world to human capital development. We, as a health and care economy, we have a huge percentage of our workforce who are specialist tertiary educated people. That means we need STEM, you know, from age 12 to, to 16, 12 to 18 coming through to attract people into the health sciences, to attract people into medicine, and uh, to attract people into research and development, technologies and innovation. Um, we need that for our for our workforce. 
uh, in all the, the, the clinical services, but also the managerial support services to have an appreciation and everything. So how do we do that? Um, if you're, you gave some numbers about the UK and the shortages there, that's, that's a shortage relative to your um, position vacancies. Mm. That's not the shortage rel re related to your population need, no, absolutely. which far outweighs the current vacancies because you're already limited by the budget allocation to the, to the health, health sector. So you've got shortage relevant to vacancy, you've got shortage re re related to population, and then you've got some shortages around benchmarks in the world around what's a minimum staffing that you may need in certain things. So it comes back to safe staffing. Um, and it's the only way that we will come out of co if we haven't learned from COVID nineteen that we need safe staffing, um, then I'm, I'm I'm not sure what politicians need <laughs> to remind them. Yeah, and your department at the WHO is this what you're around to do to try and coordinate some of this sort of international thinking on it? Well, we're very much so. So, uh, and, um, you know, we're looking, you know, we, the, the ambition globally around. Health and well-being for all at all ages. So, how do we provide in every jurisdiction a health system that's capable to provide services to, to prevent illness when we can, but to treat it when it when it occurs, to strengthen public health uh, and really the social determinants of health. And in, and one of the essential public functions is preparedness for an emergency response. So, how do you look at the health system's capacity to do all of that? in a coherent way? How do you make sure that, that that health system and the health workforce, there's one health workforce, but it's, it has different roles. Yeah. It's, we, we don't necessarily want a health workforce for um, my left toe and a health workforce for my um, you know, emergency preparedness or my granny's right ear. You know, we, it's one workforce that is providing this. And so how do we get the, the education, the employment, the incentives, the rewards, to be able to deliver that and what's the evidence of what works where and that's a key part of the normative role for WHO is to collect that evidence uh, mem member states there's a very you know WHO is the countries it's the ministers of health from 194 jurisdictions and others so it's they are collectively sharing their evidence of what works and through that we filter you know through different scientific um, uh, standards and normative standards to be able to say okay well here's these are the sort of policy options available, and these are the poly op policy options that are working in these type of contexts and these type of geographies. And therefore, dear minister, dear policy guidance, dear permanent secretary, director general, or of whatever institution, then these are some of the options that are available to you, contextualized to your, sy your system and your needs. And earlier, you used the phrase, I think probably quite deliberately, health and care systems. And that's a conversation we're having in the UK at the mm -hmm. moment about the, the fundamental importance of joined up thinking between mm -hmm. the two absolutely, of Absolutely, absolutely. So the UK, we're watching with interest in terms of uh, the, the shift that you're taking there with integrated health and care services and the new governance mechanisms you're applying. But it's not only the UK that's, that's shifting in that direction. Um, we're, we're seeing that across OECD settings and, and elsewhere. The, the nature of that, I think, it, we, we've got, just coming out of the pandemic now, we've got a backlog of disruption to services and a backlog around many services. We've now got a huge uh, 
vaccination effort, which has been done as an emergency response, but we need to fully integrate into our routine immunization services. We've got an emergency preparedness agenda where, where we saw the world failed. So we've got ever greater needs of our health and care system um, to, to deliver. At the same time as all the economic pressures, um, the many countries have used, you know, gone into debt to try and fund their GDP, to try and fund their, their COVID response. Now we've got the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and a clear challenge there on fuel, on, on food, on cost of living. So money is going to go tight. We, we do not, in many economies, we're not going to see new injection into social spending for education, for health and social protection. There's going to be a stagnation in the global economy in many, many settings. And so it's going to be about how can we improve the resources we have? And one way to do is be much more integrated. Put people first. It's, it's interesting. Sorry, we're just hitting 20 minutes. Do you have time for one more? Yeah. Just a, a wrap up on that, really. Um, yesterday, I interviewed um, Sally Davis about antimicrobial resistance, which might feel <laughs> very far apart. But I think the message um, from that was, yeah, that joined up thinking, piggybacking, you know, things on top of each other, making sure that connectedness has helped. And it feels like, COVID has really exposed the limitations of those siloed structures of funding and, and everything else that we've been doing. Do you feel like that change is, is actually happening or is that a, an ambition? I, I, I think you're absolutely right, Duncan. People are, are, we're very good at, in the, the health and care sector, we're very good at diagnosing challenges. <laughs> um, and we've got a shared diagnostic. We've seen what isn't working at optimal. Uh, we are seeing some of the, ch the, 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 the clinical challenges, the public health challenges, the economic challenges. We're seeing the population needs coming through. The diagnostic is there. Uh, and it's probably, a, we've got a, a much smaller um, circle of diagnosis than, than ever before in terms of the, the, what we need to do. The challenge is, will we jointly work on the solution instead of having a hundred solutions depending on which sector, which specialty, which, which silo you represent. Mm. If you fill a room full of firemen, you're going to have a solution to put the fire out, but that isn't necessarily doing your, your long-term protection to prevent fire in the future. So we need everyone in the room to come up with those joint solutions. That's it for this episode of the podcast. Thanks to Sally Davis and James Campbell for joining us. We'll be back next week with another Doctor Informed talking about Med Twitter and another Talk Evidence. For more from the Wish Conference, I've put the BMJ Collections, which was sponsored by Wish, in the podcast text. You can read all about patient participation and food security. And we'll also hear more about food systems in general in a future podcast. Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.